We'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 10 once again. Several weeks ago, if you've been with us, you may recall that we um, started a series that we've entitled Our Authority in Christ. We've uh, begun to, to look at some things that the Bible has to say about our authority. And then we kind of took a, uh, um, well, I don't want to say we took a side journey because it's, uh, it's important. We began talking last week about a subject that's very important relative to authority, and that is the sovereignty of God. Now, in Luke chapter 10 and verse 19, it says, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he said, Behold, I give unto you power, literally this word is authority, over all the power. Now, here's the second word power. Two times the word power is, is uh, translated in uh, the King James, but they're different words in the Greek. The first word means delegated power or authority. The second word means ability. So he's saying, Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power, ability of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. That means if we use our authority effectively and properly, the devil doesn't have any way to hurt us. Now, as, as we made mention uh, um, as, as in beginning the service last week, and if you weren't with us last week, I would encourage you to get a hold of the tape or the MP3 or however it works for you. Get a hold of the message uh, that we talked about last week because this doctrine in the body of Christ, in the, in the, um, in the church world, on the sovereignty of God, in my opinion, is one of the greatest thieves. It robs people, it steals from people the knowledge of who we are in Christ and what authority Jesus has given us. Now, very simply, the, the sovereignty of God doctrine is that God's running everything. Well, if God's running everything, then how did Jesus tell his disciples that they had authority? The church is left, therefore, if, if, they, if they believe the idea, that the notion that God is running everything, then we're left with explaining away verses of Scripture, like Luke ten nineteen that belong to us, that give us authority over the devil, that give us a means of victory over the devil, and we're left with things like, well, that was just for the apostles, meaning Jesus had special authority that he gave to them, but that's not working for you and me. Well, that idea will leave you a victim open to anything and everything the devil brings into your life. How do you stand against the devil when you don't know if it's the devil that's doing it and it's, it might be God pulling strings? As such, this morning we want to talk about a subject and go a little bit further into the sovereignty of God notion that is, um, is really central, in my opinion, is central to the whole idea and the wrong idea that so many Christians have about what God's role is, and that is the subject or the topic of predestination. Most everybody, and, and these go hand in hand, sovereignty of God and predestination really go hand in hand, in that uh, if, if the sovereignty of God means he's pulling all the strings, predestination means he's already preset how everything's going to go. Now, there are a lot of scriptures that are, that are unclear to us. We looked at some things last week where the Bible very specifically and very simply said, God, I'm, God said, I made everything. I even made the wicked for the day of evil. Well, you can explain away, and, and uh, I, don't, I don't mean ignore, but you can show the truth of what's really being said there in many cases by just going back to the original scripture. The original scripture there does not say, I made the wicked for the day of evil. It very simply, well, let me read it to you from, uh, from the original uh, language. The, um, uh, the Greek uh, translation of the, the Hebrew says it this way in Proverbs 16, 4. It says, all the works of the humble man are manifest with God, but the ungodly shall perish in an evil day. We'll compare that to the King James on Proverbs 16, 4. The Lord has made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. One way makes it sound like God's done it and he's got some plan to destroy people. And the other way just says the wicked will perish when the, when the evil day comes. Big difference there. 
So there are some things that we can gain just from the language. And folks, please understand, there is no translation that is inspired. The original text is inspired of the Holy Ghost. But translations are the product of men. And every translation, I like the King James. I think the King James is the best one that's out there. But there are some things about it that is just absolutely wrong in comparison to the original translation or the original scripture, the original text. Every translation depends on two things. Please keep this in mind. Every translation you'll ever get depends on two things. Number one, the translator's knowledge of the language. And number two, the translator's understanding of God. Because there are some words, another example we looked at is uh, uh, Isaiah 45, verse 7, I believe it is, where God says, I make everything, I form peace, and create evil. Well, okay, what does that mean? That word create in the Hebrew can have two separate meanings. One means to make or to create, as we would understand. But the second meaning is to cut down, like you'd cut down a tree. Well, which ones do you use? You can know the language and know that both of them are appropriate. Which one are you going to choose? It's left to the translators based on their understanding of God. And some of their understanding of God is just wrong. So what about this predestination thing? What about predestination? Now, folks, there are some scriptures in the Bible that are hard to understand, some of it because of translation and some of it because of the culture. The Bible is an Eastern book, and we try to interpret it in a Western mindset. So there are some difficult scriptures. I'm not going to sit here and say everything's easy and, and so forth. There are some scriptures I have a hard time with. We'll talk about a couple of those today. However, there are some scriptures that are not in dispute. Now, folks, I, I, I don't know what your experience is. I, I, um, uh, I try to keep up with what's going on. I try to keep up with what's going on in the world politically, uh, militarily, all that kind of stuff. I do a lot of study. I'm a history buff and, and, and that kind of thing. So I do a lot of reading. On, uh, on current events, I do a lot of reading on church history. I do a lot of reading on, on uh, American history, world history, and different things like that. And, uh, it, but, but honestly, in some ways, I'm kind of in a bubble because I deal with faith people. I teach faith, and, and about the only, only uh, contradiction there is to that is when people come and they have questions and, and hey, about, how, what about this and how, what about that? And every now and then you'll have somebody that the devil is sending near that uh, thinks it's their job to change our church. And, uh, and, and so they'll, you know, they'll rise up and they'll do some things and, and, uh, and, and there's easy answers for things. I don't have any problem with that. I, you know, it's not like debating is something that I enjoy. Well, okay, I kind of do enjoy it. But, um, it really doesn't do any good. In most cases, it doesn't do much good. But folks, I'd stand up against anybody and any doctrine that they have regarding predestination or sovereignty or anything else. I'd be glad to go with them. I'd be glad to talk to them publicly, privately. I have no problem with that whatsoever because I've got the Bible on my side. I don't care how many degrees they've got. I don't care how many letters are behind their names. I got a lot of letters in my book. But what about this predestination thing? Let's deal with some scriptures that we know, that we know, that we know. Here's one of the things that just frustrates the stew out of me with Christians. They'll let things they don't know dissuade them from things that they do know. Now, how does that make sense? Stick with the things that you know and then study out the other things that you're not sure about. But don't give away the things that you know. I got an email from somebody the other day and they're having a hard time with this thing about tongues. Well, what I've talked to many other pastors and they say that tongues aren't for today and they go to 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Prophecies will cease, tongues will come to an end and, and knowledge shall cease. And they want to pick one out of there and say, see, tongues have ended. Seriously? 
So I just emailed back. I said, and I love this lady. She's been coming to our church off and on for a long time and, and struggled with this for years. And I just, I just emailed her back and I said, listen, I said, you know, I, I, it's amazing to me how people would, would take that position when Paul is clearly talking about three things that will end at the same time. Prophecies, tongues, and knowledge. Well, knowledge hadn't ended. You're waiting for my joke, aren't you? <laughs> the very same people that say the tongues have ceased to say that prophecy is what we know of as preaching today. Well, that hadn't ended. But all of a sudden, one out of the three tongues is supposed to have ended? My Bible says, Jesus said, that the Holy Ghost, who the Comforter, who is the Comforter, who the Father will give you, will abide with you forever. Yet somebody's going to stand up and say, here's what God has done and here's how it's ended. Folks, I don't care what anybody says. I'm sticking with the Bible. And it's working for me. Don't try to talk me out of it. It's working for me. And that's what I told this lady. I said, if your purpose is to try to talk me out of something that I know, forget it. You're wasting your time. Now, you can think what you want to, but I'm, I know. Well, that's where I am with the rest of the Scripture. Things that I know, I stick with. Let's talk about some things that we know. Let's talk about some scriptures that are overlooked by the predestination and sovereignty group that we can use as a baseline to try to understand the rest of the things that we might not have such a clear understanding about. Turn with me to Psalms 34. Psalm 34. Any doubt that there's evil in the world? Any doubt that there's trouble and tests and trials and affliction and hard places and adversity and things like that? Any, anybody have any doubt about that whatsoever? Well, of course not. Everybody understands that. The only question is why? Who's doing it? Who's behind it when it comes? Notice in, in uh, Psalm 34, verse 19, David, the psalmist, said, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Now, the word afflictions here from the Hebrew means bad or evil. He said many bad things happen to good people. Many evil things happen to good people. Now, folks, I would submit to you that if God has predestined everything to happen, then the very next thing that's going to be said is God's going to explain, but don't worry, it's all part of my plan. Wouldn't that make sense? If God's pulling strings, if he's the one that's behind the bad things and the evil things that happen even to righteous people because he has some mysterious plan that we can't understand, then wouldn't the next thing that he say be something like, but be of good cheer because I'm behind all this and it's going to work to your good somehow or another. Wouldn't that make sense? But notice the contrast that is made as the Holy Ghost inspires David. This is the Holy Ghost telling you how things work. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but, everybody say but. That indicates contrast, doesn't it? But the Lord delivers them out of them all. So God is saying, I don't care what any preacher tells you, God is saying afflictions are on one side, but I am on the other side. Bad things are on one side. By the way, the root word that, uh, from this, uh, that this word affliction comes from uh, is the word worthless, good for nothing. Worthless things happen to good people. But the Lord delivers them out of them all. So what is the Holy Ghost telling us? He's telling us there is trouble in the world. There are bad times. There are adverse situations that you're going to come up on. But God gives you victory. Now look with me over to John chapter 16. Let's get a New Testament example. We can take Jesus' word for things, can't we? John chapter 16, Jesus has just finished his discourse on the night that he was betrayed at the, the time that he spent with his disciples at the Last Supper. John's uh, gospel is interesting in this regard. 
because he gives us an eyewitness account. He's the only one that really gives us an eyewitness account of the details of what Jesus told them before he went to the cross. And most of what he told them was about the Holy Ghost coming and what the Holy Ghost would do. We have more information in John 14, 15, and 16 about the Holy Ghost, who Jesus calls the Comforter, the Spirit of Truth. We have more information about him in those three chapters from an eyewitness testimony than any other place in Jesus' ministry. So John gives us eyewitness testimony, first-hand testimony. And notice what he says that Jesus concludes all these things by saying in verse 33. John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus said, these things have I spoken unto you. Here's the reason why I gave you all this information. These things have I spoken unto you that in me you should have peace. Might have peace, but that's what he's saying. He's saying here's the source of peace. That in me you might have peace. Now here's the contrast. He says, now in the world you're going to have tribulation. This word tribulation means pressure. It means anguish. It means persecution. It means burden. It means trouble. He said there's tough places, tough times out in the world. And again, if this is a predestination issue, God's preset everything up ahead of time. You don't have anything to do with it. God's just determined how it's going to be. Wouldn't Jesus say, but it's all part of my plan? To say something otherwise, if it was part of God's plan, and to tell him something otherwise would be to mislead him, wouldn't it? I mean, he's not being completely honest. So if this is all part of God's plan because God's pulling strings, Peter, you're going to have some real trouble, but don't worry, it's God's plan for you. John, things are going to go a little bit easier for you. You're going to live a long time. They're going to boil you on oil and stuff, but don't worry about that. That won't take you out. Oh, well, that was, that was what Peter argued about. Jesus, you said John's, here's John's end, or Jesus, you told me what my end would be. What about John's? He's going to have it as bad as me too, isn't he? If this is not part of God's plan for them to have trouble, to have burdened down, to be burdened down, to, to be anguished, to be persecuted and so forth, if this is not God, part of God's plan, then why wouldn't Jesus next tell them that it was his plan? That something good, even though they wouldn't understand, something good would come out of it. That's what the church says today. No, Jesus said, I said these things to you that you might have peace. Now, in the world, you're going to have tribulation, pressure, anguish, persecution, burden, and trouble. But be of good cheer. Why? Because it's God's plan? No, because I've overcome the world. So what's the source of the peace? The victory that Jesus is giving him. The source of the peace is not be at peace because this is God's plan for you to go through these hard places. No, the source of peace is I've overcome. That's why they're supposed to be of good cheer, because there's victory. Not because God's pulling strings and keeping them in the dark about stuff. Now turn with me over to James chapter 1. Folks, you do realize that the Bible is progressive revelation, don't you? By that I mean Paul knew more than Isaiah knew. Not because Paul was smarter than Isaiah. He may have been, I don't know. But because... The plan of God was more fully revealed when God spoke to Paul than it was when God spoke to Isaiah. Daniel's a good example, a good example. Daniel saw some things about the end. He saw the 70 weeks. Man, he saw the church age. He saw the, uh, uh, the tribulation period. He saw a lot of those things. Yet God told Daniel, seal up the books until knowledge increases. Until the time comes when knowledge increases, 
He gave some signs of the end, one of them being the increase of knowledge. He said, then the books will be open and people will be able to understand it. Well, that's the day we live in. So we understand more than they understood. That's not to say that we're, that, that we're better than them. It's not to say that they weren't used of God. There's just an increase of knowledge. The Bible is progressive revelation. The Old Testament prophecies about Jesus were clearly understood when you realize Jesus went to the cross and raised from the dead. Clearly understood. How would you understand those things beforehand, though? Man, even Jesus' disciples didn't get it after his teaching. He had to upbraid them for their hardness of heart and unbelief after he was raised from the dead. He said, what are you guys doing? I told you I was going to the cross. I told you I was going to be killed. I told you I was going to be raised from the dead. And they're all sitting around saying, I'm going back to fishing. Why? Because they didn't understand. They didn't understand because there were blinders on their eyes. But when they were redeemed from spiritual death, when they passed from spiritual death to spiritual life, then things started becoming clear. Well, that's what we've got in the letters written to the church. Now, notice something that James says. James starts off in chapter 1 and verse 2. He said, brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. This word temptations means test, trials, or afflictions. He doesn't say you're not going to have test trials and afflictions. He says, here's how to handle them. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Another translation says, let patience have her perfect work that victory may be fully restored. I like that. It's talking about overcoming, right? Now, notice something else that James said. Notice in verse 13. Well, maybe we are to start in verse 12. He said, blessed is the man that endureth temptation. Now, what does enduring temptation mean? Same, temp- same word for temptation, test, trials, and affliction. Blessed is the man that endures test, trials, and afflictions. Why? Because it's the plan of God? No. He's just told you what test, trials, and afflictions were all about. Test, trials, and afflictions are a, uh, are an, uh, a temporary interruption of victory. But here's how you get back to restored victory. Count it all joy. And let, faith, let patience have her perfect work. In other words, don't think that just because things are going bad for you, that it means God's forgotten you, that it means this is over, things used to be good, but now it's too late for you. He said, blessed is the man that endures hard places. Now, how are we supposed to endure hard places? By doing what verse 2 said, counting it all joy. He's saying, here's the blessing for the person that counts it all joy in the middle of a hard place. Victory is restored. That's why you see so many Christians that never get out of hard places because they won't regain their victory by doing what the Bible says. Their life goes from one tragedy to the next tragedy to the next tragedy. They go from affliction to affliction to affliction and cry out and say, oh, God, why is this happening to me? Because you won't count it joy. Because you won't gain the knowledge that you need from the Bible about victory being yours, about who you are in Christ, so that you operate in that victory by counting it joy. Yet who gets the blame for it? God. Folks, I got to tell you, I don't know how it's going to work for you, but on Judgment Day, I get a ringside seat. I get to listen to everybody that says that we're teaching the wrong things, we're teaching all this health and wealth gospel, and that's not the way God is. I get to listen to them explain to the Lord why they didn't believe what the Bible said. Now, I don't get to speak, but I get to listen.
So he said, blessed is the man that endures these hard places, for when he is tried, tempted, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. Why? Because that's how you realize the victory, the overcoming that Jesus has already uh, accomplished for us. How many of you want your kids to never have a problem in life? You are hoping for them to be hopelessly immature. Hard places are some of the best learning experiences that there are. And folks, that you can, there's always going to be only two ways you can learn. You can learn from somebody else's experience or you can learn by hitting your head on the wall. There's only two ways to learn. You can learn from somebody else's experience. That's what the Bible tells us about so we can learn from it. Or you can learn from your own experience by hitting your head on the wall. Either way, you learn. And don't think for a minute that if you choose to learn by the word, you're not going to have trouble. Because the devil is going to come to see how much do you really believe what you say you believe. That's the temptation. That's the test, the trial, and the affliction. The trying of your faith work is patience. That's why he says the one that endures the trials will be blessed. He'll receive the crown of life. Folks, God didn't give you the word so you could sail through life on flowery beds of ease. God gave you the word so that you'd have something to use as a weapon when trouble comes. How do you gain maturity? By gaining victory through walking in the word. And that's how you get stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. The Bible calls it, Paul called it, adding experience to your faith. Folks, please understand this. You want to learn faith not from some Bible school student that's heard the message. You want to learn faith from somebody that's got scars. Want me to show you mine? This is what he's talking about. Blessed is the man that endures temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. Verse 13. Let no man say when he is tempted. No. So what's his, what's his topic? What's he talking about? He's saying very specifically, now when you're in the middle of a, tr- a hard place, when you're in the middle of a test, a trial, or affliction, don't you dare say. That's what he's saying. The church has forgotten this verse. I'm telling you, the church world has forgotten this verse, if they ever knew it was there. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. In other words, let no man say when he's in the middle of a hard place, a test, a trial, or an affliction. Let no man say, God did this to me. Folks, if that verse is true, predestination is not what the church world says it is. You can't come up with God pulling strings and intended this and planned this and intended, you know, ordained from the beginning of the world that you would fight sickness and, and, and have to deal with cancer and all this. You can't say that if this verse is true. And so what does the church world do? They'll get pious on you. They'll say, well, God may not have caused it, but he allowed it. Let no man, even the idiot that says God's allowing it, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Let no man say the test, the trial, or the affliction comes from God. Now, folks, is there any room for misinterpretation on this verse? I'm trying to stick with stuff that's that's pretty obvious. Psalm 34, 19, many of the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. So God's your answer, not your problem. 
Jesus said, these things I have spoken unto you that you might have peace. In the world, you're going to have trouble, pressure and affliction and so forth. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. So what's he saying? He's saying there's trouble in the world. We know where that trouble came from. There was no trouble before sin entered the world, entered the picture. Trouble comes from Adam and Eve's sin that opened the door to the devil's operation in the world. So Jesus is saying the world's going to be full of trouble for good people too. Not just bad people, good people. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Now we're talking about test trials and afflictions, adversity and so forth. And and John, uh, what's this guy's name? James. James says, when you're tempted, and it's going to happen, when you're tempted, let no man say God did this. Why? Folks, the last part of the verse is the important part. For... Here's why. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. Now, I want you to notice what he says about test trials and afflictions. James calls them, by the Holy Ghost, evil. He says, very specifically, God can't be tempted with evil, test trials and afflictions, and neither does God use test trials and afflictions against man. And where's predestination? Where's the whole notion that God's causing bad things to happen because he's got some unknown plan that we may never know until we get to heaven. Now, here's what happens in the church world. The church world takes somebody, bless their hearts, well-meaning, good people, sincere, not throwing off on anybody whatsoever, but they'll go through a hard place. No matter what the tragedy is in their life, they'll go through a hard place, and they'll get this syrupy, sweet attitude of God must have a plan in this. We don't know what it is. And so out of the sweetness of their heart, they'll make a book about it. And talk about all the good that came because of the trouble that I had to put up with for all these years of my life. What do you do with things like that? You know it's true just as much as I do. And they're some of the best-selling books because people can relate. Oh, yeah, I've had hard places too. And I haven't understood why God this is to me either. (sighs) What about that? Well, God certainly looks on a person's heart. And if a person's heart toward God is, is right and is open, and, and if that's all the knowledge that they have and they think God's behind this and they still love God anyway, then I'm sure God credits them for their love toward him. But it doesn't change the truth of the word. It just adds to the lie that the devil uses against the body of Christ to stop using or fail to use or not even know about their authority. Turn with me over to to Romans chapter 9. Here's a a chapter where Paul is talking about Israel. And this is one of the most used places in the Bible where the predestination idea and the sovereignty of God idea is, is purported by the church world. Now, you know as well as I do that Paul didn't write chapter 9 separate from anything else. This is part of a letter. 
Paul starts his letter by saying, here's what's hap- here's what happens. Chapters one and chapter two of Romans. He says, here's what happens to people that reject the things of God, meaning God's word and God's uh, plan and, and so forth. He said, they'll either go hard into sin. They'll become reprobate or they'll become really religious. He said, here's the result of sin in a person's life. They will either, sin meaning the rejection of the truth of God. They'll either go hard into sin, they'll become reprobate, or they'll go hard religious. Folks, please understand, religious people, in Paul's day at least, were just as unsaved as the, as the unsaved, you know, the real sinners out there. Just because they purported to follow God and just because they claimed to love God didn't mean that they were saved. Now, unfortunately, what happens today is you get a lot of people saved, but then they're still hard into religion. So they are born again. Heaven will be their home, but they're still promoting the doctrine of the devil that keeps man out of victory. And that's the biggest, um, well, in my opinion, it's the biggest enemy that the church has, the real Christian has today. Because it leaves those of us that believe the word isolated. Instead of having Christian fellowship, instead of having somebody to encourage us in our faith, we have to swim upstream. Now, I would encourage you to be strong enough so that you can handle the swim. Because just because you might be alone, and here's another thing, oh, Pastor Mike, believe with me for another job. I'm the only Christian on my job. Why do you think you're there? Oh, but I want to go work with Christians. Yeah, that's a bowl of cherries. Because <laughs> those Christians, they're all really mature. They all handle things just right. Folks, people are people. Don't run away from something just because you're alone. Sure, it'd be easier if there were more of us to encourage one another. That's why it's so important for us to be in church. But even if you're not surrounded by other people and people of like faith, you can still make it because God in you is greater than than whatever's going on outside of you. Okay, Romans chapter 9. Paul talks about his problem with his flesh. Well, I'm going to have to give you an overview of the book of Romans, aren't I? Chapter 1 and 2, he talks about either sinners or religious. That's where people go that reject the word of God. The, the, the problem is still the same. We're all, we've all come short of the glory of God. Man's still a sinner. Chapters 4 and chapters 5 and chapter 6 talks about the exchange. Jesus went to the cross. He exchanged death for life. He became spiritually the spiritual death. He became the punishment, the price for spiritual death, so you could exchange for spiritual life. But then Paul talks about in chapter 7, but I still have problems with my flesh. I'm born again, but I still have problems with my flesh. And that's where he had his conflict. My spirit wants to do the right thing because that's where Jesus lives. But my body still wants to do the same wrong things it always wanted to do. I can't seem to control it. I can't seem to make it do the right thing. What in the world am I going to do? Who's going to deliver me from this? Chapter 8 is the victory chapter. He starts off by saying, first and foremost, chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. First thing you got to realize is God doesn't condemn you because you're having problems with your flesh. Some people will hear that and run off the other way and say, oh, well, God doesn't condemn me, so I'll just keep doing it. That's not the point Paul's trying to make. 
He's saying the key to victory is to realize first and foremost, God's not mad at me. He knows I'm made of flesh. He knows I have this problem. He knows there's a struggle between my spirit and my body. That's why I need to renew my mind, chapter 12, so that I can control myself, my body, my flesh, and be an instrument of righteousness. Now, folks, chapters 8 and chapters 12 are the victory chapters. Chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul goes on a rabbit trail to talk about Israel. He's not talking to the church, or he's not talking about the church. He's talking to the church about Israel. Now, the Romans are made up of a Gentile group of people. He's not talking to the Jews about Jews. He's talking to the Gentiles about Jews. And so what does he say? He starts off in chapter 12, and he says, first and foremost, I'd give up my own salvation if Israel could be saved. He's saying the very people that are persecuting me, if you look at the life of Paul in the book of Acts, you'll find out the vast majority of trouble Paul encountered was at the hand of the Jews, the religious people. He starts off saying, I would give up my own salvation if Israel could be saved. Why won't that be? Because they refuse the word of God. What does he do? He goes further in chapter 9. Notice he speaks of three examples. He talks of three examples. Um, where should we start? Notice chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 6. It says, not as though the word of God has not taken none effect. He's talking about the Old Testament was, was powerful, was profitable. But not all of Israel, they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Now, some people will take that verse of Scripture and say, see, the Bible's full of contradictions. What in the world was Paul talking about? He's saying very simply this. He's saying not all of those who are natural descendants of Abraham are considered the seed of Abraham. Well, who is? Not the natural Jews. Then who is the seed of Abraham? Those that have made Jesus the Lord of their lives. These are the examples that he uses between the separation God makes between those that reject him and those that accept him. He said, verse 7, neither they are the seed of, because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of flesh, that's Ishmael and his people, the Arabs, Muslims. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise, verse 9, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. So what's he saying? Well, I better read verse 10 too. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. Uh, never mind, it went too far. What's he saying? First example, he's saying there's a difference between uh, Isaac and Ishmael. He's saying there's a difference between Isaac and Ishmael. Why? Because one was the product of the flesh, the other was the product of the word of God. Now, folks, the Bible says that God blessed Ishmael. And Ishmael, the tribe of Ishmael, has been blessed naturally in descendants. But you can't find any other way that they've been blessed. I'm reading a book that was written by, uh, that was recommended to me by a fellow in the church. It was written by the Israeli ambassador to the United States. And it's from 1776, from the start of the country, all the way up until the present day, about this fascination that Americans have had with the Middle East and about what a wonderful place it is. And it goes back, a lot of it has to do with Hollywood and some of the earlier writings, A Thousand Nights in Arabia or something like that. I don't know what the book is, but it just captured the imagination of Americans and they just wanted to go to the Middle East. And every one of them that went to the Middle East said, you have got to be kidding. 
This place is a garbage heap. There's nothing beautiful about this. There's nothing romantic about this. Everybody comes back. Everybody writes in their journals and, and even famous people. Mark Twain, for example, he went, man, <laughs> I mean, railing on Muslims in the Middle East. Nobody wants to come here. This is a flea-bitten place. The scourge of the earth. How in the world could God have ever used anything around here? Yet they're blessed with descendants. So what is he saying? He's saying the difference between or the distinction between Ishmael and Isaac was that Isaac was the promise of God's word put in action. So who does God have respect to? The child of promise. The result of the word. Next example he uses is Jacob and Esau. So it says, uh, Rebekah conceived by our father Isaac in verse 10. Verse 11, for the children not being yet born, neither having done any good or evil. Here's predestination. The idea of predestination. Neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election. Most word, most people look at the word election to mean selection. That election might stand not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, the elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Well, there it is. There's the doctrine of predestination. God picked before they were ever born which one he's going to love and which one he's going to hate. Here's the problem. The word hate has nothing to do with emotions. This word hate has nothing to do with emotions. You can't find anywhere in the Bible where God ever said he hated anybody. You can find where the Bible says God hates those that take part in sin. But his hatred is towards sin, not them. He hates the fact that they've chosen sin. The Bible says that God hates sin itself. The Bible speaks of hating behavior that is sinful when people willingly operate in it. But there again, if the hatred of God was against people, then Jesus wouldn't have come and condemned sin in the flesh. He wouldn't have dealt with sin separate from flesh. That's what that means. Condemned sin in the flesh means God dealt with sin separate from mankind for the first time in the, in the, in, in the history of the world. That's why Jesus had to become sin. He had to go from being a man to becoming sin. So what does it mean here where God hated Esau and loved Jacob? Poor old Esau. Here he is just being born, just going through life, didn't have anything to do with it, and God hated him. And folks, here's the predestination idea. Here's the sovereignty of God idea. God picks some for heaven and some for for hell. We've got a problem with that idea. Because the Bible says that God is no respecter of persons. Even the Old Testament says, and the New Testament tells us also, that we shouldn't be respecter of persons. That means if God is a respecter of persons, picks one for heaven, one for hell, that means God is a lawbreaker. He has broken the same law that he gave us. He's demanding more from us than he's willing to do for himself. Which means he's unrighteous. Which means he can't be the author of righteousness. Which means there is no salvation. Which means there is no hope. Then how do we reconcile this? Well, folks, do you remember the story of Jacob and Esau? 
The story of Jacob and Esau was very simply this. Esau was the elder. That means he had the birthright. That means the blessing that God gave his father, Isaac, through his grandfather, Abraham, would be his. But he sold it. He came in and he was hungry one day from hunting. And he came in and Jacob, mama's boy, is cooking. And he's got all stew together and boy, this stuff smells good. Oh, wow. Esau says, give me some of that stuff. Jacob says, it'll cost you. He said, I'll give you anything. He said, I'll take your birthright. Esau says, well, what good is my birthright if I starve to death? Sure, you can have it. Now, folks, you need to understand something about God. There are four words, well, really five, that are very important for you to understand when to know the plan of God. One is foreknowledge. Foreknowledge means that God knows things beforehand. Now, it's hard for us to imagine this. It's hard for us to relate to this because we don't have foreknowledge. But just like we can look back to things in the past, we can look back to 9-11, 2001. We can look at the things that happened there. You can look at, you can look at tape. You can look at events. You can look at things. We do this with movies sometimes. You know what it is. You've seen the movie before. You know exactly what's going to happen, but you're hoping it, you're hoping it doesn't happen. You're hoping it doesn't happen. You're hoping it doesn't happen. But it happens the same way every time. And you know it's going to happen that way no matter what you want to happen. You know that's the way it's going to be. God sits above time. We're operating here on this plane of earth. But God sits above time. And God can see the past just like we can see the past and know everything that's going to happen with certainty. But God can also see the future and know with certainty what's going to happen. Doesn't mean he's making it happen. It just means he sees it happening. You look at tapes of 9-11, you didn't make it happen, but you know exactly what happened. So foreknowledge is important for you to understand. Predestinate is another word that's important to understand. We'll talk about that as we go. Another word that's important for you to understand is election. Another word that's important for you to understand is called, literally called out. Another word that's important for you to understand is chosen. All of those words, foreknowledge, chosen, elect, called, and predestinate, the church has attached causative action to. And not a one of them mean causative action. Not one of them. If I invite a group of people over to my house, I can know ahead of time some of the ones that will come. I have foreknowledge. That's not absolute. God's foreknowledge is absolute. But I can have a measure of foreknowledge. I know some people would come to my house. They would, if their kids were getting married that day, they'd change the wedding date to come to my house. They have that kind of respect for me. I know some people have that kind of attitude toward me. Other people, I have to wait and see. Make an invitation. I don't know if they're going to come or not. Don't know if they want to come. Don't know if they've got anything else on their schedule. I don't know. But we have foreknowledge, limited foreknowledge. God has unlimited foreknowledge. But that doesn't mean causative. It doesn't mean he's causing anything. Election means those that choose for themselves, not those that God has chosen. God issues the invitation to everybody. Now, here's my point. If God is a respecter of persons, if he's picking some people for heaven and some people for hell, he's a lawbreaker and he's unrighteous. He can't be the source of righteousness. There can be no redemption. There can be no hope for man. I'm sorry. That's just true. 
Some people would say that's sacrilegious to say that, but I'm sorry, God gave me a brain, I intend to use it. But God very definitely is a respecter of faith. Did you hear me? God is no respecter of persons, but he is very definitely a respecter of faith. What is happening here? The two examples he's used so far, Ishmael versus Isaac, one was of faith, one was of flesh. The second example he uses, Jacob and Esau, one was of flesh, the other had respect under the blessing of God through his birthright. We'd have to call that faith, wouldn't we? What's the third example he uses? Oh, here's the tough one. Third example he uses, uh, better back up to verse 13 and get this in context. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. How could there be unrighteousness unless God's picking one for heaven and one for hell? Well, why is there no unrighteousness with God? Because he's not respecting people, he's respecting faith. And faith is a choice. For he said unto Moses, now he's going to talk about Moses. He's going to use Moses as an example now. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. In other words, the only thing you can do is believe God. He's the one that brings about the results. Your only work is to choose to believe. Can't do it in the flesh. Two people have been left out are the people that were trying to do it in the flesh. Can't do it that way. Why? Because there's no mercy in the flesh. There's no mercy shown by God upon those who act upon the flesh. Verse 17, for the scripture says unto Pharaoh, oh, Moses and Pharaoh is the third example. Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore, therefore is there for a reason. He comes to a conclusion based on the examples. Therefore, has he mercy upon whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardens. Ah! We were doing good till we got to that one. All right, let's take, take verse 17. For even the scripture says about Pharaoh, I've raised him up that I might show my power upon him. Folks, what does that mean? Here's how predestination and sovereignty interprets that scripture. I put Pharaoh in place so that I could kill him. And he had no choice. Because this was all part of my predestined plan. What does the scripture say, though? I raised Pharaoh up that I might show my power in him. Who is Pharaoh? Pharaoh was the god of Egypt. Now, they had other gods. They worshipped a lot of gods. They had a Nile River god. They had a, they had a god that looked like a locust. They had, a, uh, they had all kinds of different gods. As a matter of fact, every one of the ten plagues had to do with one of their gods. They had a god of the night, and that's why they had the plague of darkness. They had a god of, the, of weather, and that's why they had hail and, and uh, hailstones of fire and so forth. Every one of the ten plagues had something to do with one of their gods. But Pharaoh was their god ruler. The reason Pharaoh said no to Moses when Moses said, God told me to tell you, let my people go. He said, who is this God? You remember the first thing that happened? Moses threw down his rod. 
The magicians could duplicate that. Now, I don't know how they did that. I guess that's an Old Testament type that the devil does have power. But they threw down their sticks, and they turned into snakes too. But Moses' snake, stick, whatever, ate up theirs, which should clearly show that God's power is greater than anything that they had, which, was, uh, uh, which their source of power was the devil, clearly. But finally, they get to plague after plague, one plague after another plague after another plague. Finally, they get to the place where the magicians say, this is the hand of God. We couldn't do this. This is greater than any power that we know of or that can be known. This is God at work. What does Pharaoh do every time? He hardens his heart. What is Pharaoh doing? He is saying, I refuse to accept any God greater than myself. Now, where at any point in time would it have been possible for Pharaoh to say, you know, Moses, I do believe your God is God. I'm going to let you go. What would have been the end result? God would have shown his power in Pharaoh. It did not take Pharaoh's death to show his power in him. Let me give you a New Testament example. Jesus meets Paul on the road to Damascus. The light shines from heaven. Paul falls onto the ground. Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? He said, who art thou, Lord? He identifies first and foremost, this power has got to be God. So I don't know who you are, but you must be God. Jesus answers. He said, I'm Jesus whom thou persecutest. It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. You know what? That's a New Testament or a modern day English translation. Let me give you a modern day Mike Webb translation. Are you going to keep fighting me? Now that you see. Are you going to keep fighting me? What if he had? Was it a certainty that, that, that Paul would turn around? Was it a certainty that Paul would become the, the man of God and the minister that he was? He didn't have to. He chose. Why did he choose? Because he saw the power of God. So then he says, what would you have me to do, Lord? He's confessing Jesus as Lord. Once he hears who he is, he confesses Jesus as Lord and then says, what do you want me to do? I'm yours. And his life turned around. So the power of God was made manifest in Saul, who later became Paul, because he hearkened to the message of God through the power, the display of power. Why couldn't Pharaoh have done the same thing? Why did God not show respect to Pharaoh? Because he refused his word. He relied on the arm of his flesh, and it cost him his kingdom and his life. There's nothing about Pharaoh's death that was predetermined. There was nothing that God caused or said, this is absolute, nothing you can do about it, you're toast. Pharaoh chose. We looked last week at a lot of the verses in Exodus. Exodus chapter 7, verse 13, 14, somewhere around there, I think it is. It says, after Pharaoh saw one of the earlier signs, it says, and Pharaoh hardened, or it says, King James says, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Literally, it says, the literal translation is, and Pharaoh's heart was strong against them, and he hearkened not to Moses and Aaron. That's all it says. I've got access to 150 translations in my library. Two, King James being one and, and, and there's one other, say that God hardened his heart. Every other translation says Pharaoh did it. 
It was Pharaoh's choice to refuse the word of God. So what are the examples here? The examples are those who operate according to the flesh versus those that hearken to the word of God. And in each case, God has respect to those that hearken to his word because God has respect to faith. Yeah, but what about verse 19? Is it 19, 18? Which one is it? Verse 18. Therefore, has he mercy upon whom he will have mercy and whom he will he hardens. What is that saying? Notice the therefore. It's saying here's the conclusion for the three examples we've just looked at. Isaac versus Ishmael, Jacob versus Esau, Moses versus Pharaoh. What's the common denominator in each one of them? The ones that had the blessing of God upon them were the ones that operated in faith. Therefore, because God is a respecter of faith, therefore, will he have mercy upon whom he will have mercy? Who will God have mercy on? Those that operate in faith. But what about the last part? And whom he will, he hardens. That's not what it says. Check it out for yourself. That's not what it says. It's a great scripture if you want to hold to a, a false doctrine of sovereignty of God stuff where God's pulling strings and man doesn't have a choice, but that's not what it's saying. And it's saying to those that choose to harden, God wills. In other words, God will let you harden your heart if that's what you want. That's the very reason that the writer of the book of Hebrews says, harden not your hearts as Israel did in the wilderness. Your choice, not God's. If it's God's choice, why would he be writing to Israel saying, don't harden your hearts? Why would he be writing to the Hebrew Christians and say, don't harden your hearts? If God's already got it predestined and preplanned, what choice do you have? Folks, is this making any sense? Well, what about predestination? Is predestination right? Yeah, it absolutely is. But let me show you how it's right. Let me show you what predestination really is. Predestination is the simplest thing in the world to understand if you'll accept what the Bible says and don't try to add man's ideas to it. Romans chapter 8. Two places, only two places, is predestination mentioned in the New Testament. You'd think it's more the way that people live by it, by this wrong doctrine, this wrong idea that God's pulling strings and making everything happen. But it's mentioned two times in the New Testament. Romans chapter 8. Verse 29, for whom he did foreknow, here's foreknowledge, it's not causative, it just says God knows the future better than you and I know the past. For whom he did foreknow, he also did, did predestinate. Now, I haven't given you the definition of predestinate. Predestinate simply means this. It's made up of two words. It means before and boundary. Before and boundary. Another concept of the of the the Hebrew word in this case the Greek word that's uh, that's translated predestinate is to predesign to predesign now some people because of religious ideas think that means well that proves it god's making things happen that's not what the word means folks if i plan a party at my house and i'm going to invite everybody in the church I make plans for that party. I make plans for what we're going to do, what we're going to eat, what we're going to do, whatever. You know how all this goes, and, and certainly I wouldn't be the one planning the party, but let's, if a party was planned at my house. Plan for everything so that everybody has the right people there to talk to and, and, and people that they can feel comfortable with and, and activities that can take place, all of this stuff. What is that? That's a predestination. I've pre-designed the party. 
Folks, the Bible simply says that God has pre-designed a redemption party. That's what predestinate means. I'll prove it to you. For whom he did foreknow, he also did, did predestinate. Who did he foreknow? God foreknew everybody. He foreknew that some would accept Jesus, and he foreknew that some would reject Jesus. Is he making it happen? No. But God knows the future. He knows what somebody's ultimate choice is going to be. He's not making it happen any more than you made 9-11 happen. No matter how many times you watch the tape, no matter how many times you wish those things hadn't, those planes hadn't hit the buildings, no matter how many times you see it, you know what's going to happen. Because you've seen it. God sees the future. More clearly than you see the past. So he knows. He's not picking and choosing. He just knows. That's all foreknowledge is. So what does he do? He pre-designs a party. Now the Bible says very simply in 2 Corinthians, or 2 Timothy, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse uh, 4, it says God would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God's will is that everybody attend his party. My will would be everybody in the church attend my party, but not everybody's going to come. I know ahead of time. Now, I may not know who's not going to come, but I know not everybody in the church is going to come. I'm simple odds will tell you some people are going to have scheduled conflicts or whatever. I know not everybody's going to come. God knows who's not going to come to his. But just like I would want everybody in the church to come to my house to the party, God wants everybody to attend his redemption party. So it's no longer left up to the will of God. His will is clear. He wants everybody there. God wants everybody in heaven. Folks, you need to understand, hell was not made for man. All this idea, how could a loving God send a person to hell? He doesn't send you. He just lets you go if you choose. He honors your choice to go. You choose to go, not God. He chose for you to be in heaven. So what does he do? He sends out invitations. He calls out to mankind. The Bible says it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. God calls out through his goodness. He calls out through his mercy. He calls out through the message that we know of as the gospel, which means good news. The good news is the price has been paid for you to attend. Come to my party. Come to my redemption party. It's free of charge. But there's a password. God wants everybody there, but there's only one way you can get in. It won't cost you anything, but there's only one way you can get in. And that is, you have to say the password. You have to say, Jesus is my Lord. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. Now, once you enter into God's plan, God's party, his redemption party, he has provided everything for you. His redemption party lasts until the end of the world. He has blessed you with all spiritual blessings. That means party favors galore. That means healing is a party favor. That means prosperity or provision is a party favor. It means peace is a party favor. It means righteousness is a party favor. It means every good thing that you can possibly think of is a party favor. They already all belong to you. You have the biggest gift bag that's given to you when you walk in the door that you can possibly imagine. 
Literally, the Bible says he's blessed you with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. That means he's made provision for everything you'll ever need for the last seconds that you're here on this earth. Already done. Doesn't cost you a thing. All you have to do is say the password and enter into the party. Now, once you're in the party, do you know what you're called? You're called the elect. You're called the called out. You're called the chosen. But who did the choosing? Well, God chose for you to come, but you chose to enter in. That's God's pre-designed plan. And that's the only way it can work for man to have a free will, folks. Now, let's keep reading. Romans chapter 8, for whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate. What did God pre-design you for? Heaven or hell? Well, heaven if you choose, but really no. God pre-designed everybody to be conformed to the image of his Son. What does that mean? That means he pre-designed for everybody. His will was to make plans for and to send out invitations for every human being to attend his redemption party. And when you enter in by saying, Jesus is my Lord, you become righteous just like Jesus. You are made in the image of God, recreated in the image of God, and then God gives you other things so that you can grow. His predestination plan is so you would be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be, Jesus might be, the firstborn among many brethren. Do you know what that's saying? That's saying God predestined you to be equal with Jesus. Now let's look at another. Well, verse 30, better read that too. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, who did he predestinate? He predesigned or predestined for everybody to enter into his redemption party. Whom he did predestinate, then he also called, and then he called, he also justified, then he justified, then he also glorified. That tells you what happens when you enter into his redemption party by saying the password. Now turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 1. I know we're running out of time, so let me, let me cover this quick. Ephesians chapter 1. Let me start reading in verse 2. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. So what's Paul saying? Paul's saying, I'm writing this as a message from God. Do you get that? This is not Paul saying, hey, by the way, I, I wanted to write. He's saying, grace be unto you in peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, God told me to write this to you. I'm speaking for him. Here's what he told me to say. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath, 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 past tense, blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Why does he say past tense? Because these are people that are already at the party. Telling them what belongs to him. According, verse 4, as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. What is it saying? That's saying God predestined. He predesigned this redemption party before God ever made the earth. Not when he made man, before he made the earth. Why? Because God in his foreknowledge could see time spread out before him. And he could see Adam's going to mess up. God make him mess up? No, he told him how not to. He gave him the means whereby he wouldn't mess up. But he saw God, Adam's going to mess up. But if Adam's going to mess up, then man's going to be left without me. So before we ever make the earth, 
we got to make a plan for man to give it back to us. Jesus, I need your help. Yes, sir, Father, what can I do? I need you to become man and then become his sacrifice. Die for his sin. Okay, I'll do that, Dad. That's what that means. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. He chose us in him. Why did he choose us? Does that mean he's picking and choosing who goes to heaven and who goes to hell? No, he's picking all of mankind. He's choosing all of mankind to be part of his family and to attend his redemption party for eternity. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Folks, please understand that there is nothing for God to blame you for. Because you've been made holy. You're at the party. You can't be at the party if there's anything God can blame you for. Yeah, but, but what about all those that, that, that live in sin? Folks, please, let's stop talking about the extremes of people that want to just try to get by with doing the wrong things. Don't you want to live right? I want to live right. And when I live wrong, when I do something wrong, my goodness, my heart condemns me for that. So what do I do? I immediately fix it. And then I have to tell myself, God's not mad at me for that. Because it feels like God should be mad at me about that. So what do I do? I confess what the Bible says instead of how I feel. I say, wait a minute, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Then the devil screams in my ear and says, no, you're not. Yeah, I am. You know you're not. You just messed up. Yeah, that's why. God didn't make it based on what I do. I'm righteous because of the blood of Jesus. Now, some people will take that and say, well, then I can keep doing it over and over and over again, over and over and over again, over and over and over again. That's not what I'm talking about, folks. I want to do the right thing. And I'm tired of people using the extremes. Well, yeah, but what about this? What about the people that want to live right? I want to talk about them. I want to give something so that those people can hit the mark. Because when we start making the mark, when we start living right, when we start operating according to the righteousness of God in our lives, then the people that are messing up all the time will see a difference and say, you know, hey, I like that. I'm not making excuses for people that do wrong. I'm just telling you what the Bible says about those of us that want to do right. I'm assuming you're in that category. At least I'm going to keep talking to you like you are, hoping you'll live up to it if you're not yet. Verse 5, well, let me read verse 4 again. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated. Having predestinated. What does that mean? That means this was God's design from the beginning. Before man was ever made, this was God's design. This was God's plan. To make a way for you to be redeemed and for you to accept it and enter into it. That was God's predesigned plan. Having predestinated us to what? What did he predestine us to? To the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself. He had pre-planned, knowing Adam was going to mess up, knowing it would separate man from him. He predestined before he ever made man, he predestined that there would be a way for you to be adopted back into his family. How? Through Jesus. Through Jesus. Whose choice is that? Yours or his? He chose you to be in his family. You choose to enter in. He chose to send Jesus to the earth and have him die as your sacrifice. You choose to accept it and enter into his goodness. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children 
to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Is God sovereign? Absolutely sovereign. God does some things apart from the man's man's idea, intent, or whatever. The rapture is a sovereign act of God. You don't have to believe a thing. Jesus is coming back. That's a sovereign act of God. You didn't have to believe a thing. Jesus came to the earth. Jesus coming to the earth, being born of a virgin, depended on only one person's faith, and that was Mary's. That's why she has a place of honor. Outside of that, it was completely separate from the, from the will of man. Didn't take one person's faith whatsoever. Jesus came to the earth, and when he was here on the earth, he operated according to God's sovereign plan to go to the cross. He went to the cross, he died on the cross, he became sin for you so that you could become righteous. That was a sovereign act of God. And then Jesus was raised from the dead and appeared to mankind and said, by grace, you can have what I did for you. God's sovereignty sent Jesus to the cross for your sacri- as your sacrifice. But what he's made available to every person by grace is accepted by faith. That means by choice. So God pre-designed the party, but you choose whether or not you attend. Yeah, but, but one more scripture. Yeah, but doesn't the Bible say God chastises those that he loves? Yes, it does. Thank you for bringing that up. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Yeah, okay, if God chastises those that he loves, then that means he punishes us. Where did you get the idea that chastisement means punishment? Chastisement means discipline. Yeah, but okay, but Pastor Mike, now you're splitting hairs. Because if he disciplines, then that means he's going to use trouble. He's going to use hard places and adversity and maybe even sickness sometimes and stuff like that. Really? Seriously? Does the idea of chastisement overcome what the Bible says about let no man say when he's tempted, he's tempted of God? Does the concept of chastisement overcome the absolute, what we have in the Bible in James chapter 1, which says when you're tempted, don't ever dare say that you're tempted of God, because God's not tempted with evil, neither does he use evil to tempt man. Don't let something you may not be clear on change what you know. God doesn't use evil. He doesn't use test trials and adversities or afflictions and trouble and pressure and persecution and all that kind of stuff. Well, then how does God chastise us? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Notice it says the Bible, the Word of God is profitable for four things. Number one is profitable for doctrine. You get your teaching from the Word. Not from man's idea and certainly not from religion. What else is the word profitable for? It's profitable for reproof. The word reproof simply means evidence. When God, when Jesus reproved his disciples for not believing in him, he was standing before them as the evidence of what he said would happen. Reproof means evidence. What else is it profitable for? For correction. The word correction means to set in order. The word of God is profitable to set things in order, not according to man's thoughts, but according to God's thoughts. 
And finally, it's profitable. The Word of God is unprofitable for instruction in righteousness. The word instruction is the word chastise. So does the Bible say that God chastises those that He loves? Absolutely. How then does He do it? Does He use sickness or disease or adversity or trouble or hard places or tragedy to do that? No. Well, then if God doesn't use that other stuff, just like the Bible says that He doesn't use that other stuff, then how does God chastise us or discipline us by the word. He gives you his word to show you what's right, what's right to believe, what order things should be in your life. The word of God is necessary for us to know that we should put spiritual things first. The word of God is necessary for us for the evidence, the stories that the Bible gives us, the examples that it gives us of God's power on display. It's evidence for us to believe what the Bible says. And folks, i got to tell you, it's a good thing we've got those stories in the Bible because the modern-day church would do away with the power of God altogether. Religion does away with the power of God or explains it by saying, well, you just never know what's going to happen. What's interesting to me, when they say you never know what God's going to do, God never seems to do anything with them. I don't see the sovereignty of God, folks, saying, well, the power of God was so great in our service last week, we just can't explain it. Instead, I see the sovereignty of God group saying, well, we don't know why all of our church is sick. There must be some greater purpose in this. It's always an excuse to blame God for bad things. Yet the Bible says that it's evidence of God's goodness. And the Bible says that God uses his word to chastise you. How does God chastise you? God chastises you by showing you what you should do and what you should not do. And as soon as you do the wrong thing, Man, don't you know on the middle, on the inside of you. Instantly. i got to tell you, folks, there are times where the Word of God has been brought to my attention by the Holy Ghost after I messed up that I would much rather have had a beating. Much rather. I would much rather experience some physical hardship than to express the disappointment of my father because I didn't do what I knew I should do. And that's the greatest incentive I have to live right. I understand a little bit more now than I used to where Jesus said my meat is to do the will of my father. What satisfies me in life is to do the will of my father. Folks, God has predestined you to walk in victory. You want to talk about the predestination of God? God has predestined you to walk in victory. God has predestined you to conquer sickness and sin and disease and lack in your life. Not just a little bit. Conquer it. Much more has God done for his children. This is why the Bible says you've been raised and seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus because God has predestined you to victory, not predestined you to sometimes have trouble. You're going to have trouble. It's just a part of the world that we live in. There's a sin-filled world that we live in, and the devil is operating against us. There's going to be trouble. Things are going to happen. Trouble is going to come. You're going to be attacked with sickness. What do you do? Jesus said, be of good cheer, for I've overcome the world. The Bible says that when afflictions come, The Lord has delivered you. He's already paid the price. He's delivered you from them all. So what do we do? Exactly what James told us to do. Count it all joy when we fall into trouble. Knowing that the trying of our faith works patience and it will restore us back to victory. 
In other words, look to God as your answer. That's exercising your authority in Christ. That's refusing to bow down to the trouble that comes. That's refusing to give in to the things that the enemy would bring, the evil that the enemy would bring, the worthless, the good-for-nothing things that the enemy brings against us. That's how you live in victory over them. You stand strong in faith and say, nope, I refuse this in the name of Jesus. Nope, not going to happen this way for me. Yeah, but it didn't change overnight, Pastor Mike. That's all right. Keep counting it joy. Keep thanking God for the answer. It will come. You've got God's unchanging word for that. You want to talk about predestination? You've been predestined to walk in victory in every situation that you encounter. That's God's plan for predestination. You have authority. When Jesus said to his disciples, Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, that authority belongs to you. Why? Because God pre-designed it before you were ever born into the earth. He pre-designed man to have authority over the devil. That authority belongs to you. Let's all stand. Let's make a confession. Say this after me. Jesus is my Lord. Therefore, I've been raised and seated in heavenly places at the right hand of God. The place of authority. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. God predestined that I walk in victory. Therefore, in the name of Jesus, I have authority over sin, sickness, Disease, disease, lack, lack depression, 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 affliction, affliction persecution, persecution, trouble, trouble pressure, pressure, anguish, and every evil thing that would come against me. I refuse to yield to the enemy's work. But instead, I count it joy. Because God knows, and I know, that what he's given me will cause me to overcome. Victory is mine. Victory is mine. Victory is mine. Victory is mine. I can't go under because Jesus put me over in every area of life. Satan, take your hands off of my body. Satan, take your hands off my finances. Satan, Take your hands off my mind. In Jesus' name, I will think only what God's Word says, and I will act according to what He told me to do. And that leads me into victory. Every time. In Jesus' name. Now lift your other hand and thank Him for it. Hallelujah. Bless you, Lord Jesus. Blessed be the name of 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 Jesus. Folks, I want to challenge you. Never, for one moment, for the rest of your life, ever allow the thought that God has brought some tragedy, some trouble, some evil, some bad thing into your life. Never, again, allow that thought to linger. The devil will bring it. But answer it. Say, oh, I'm predestined to victory. 
I'm predestined to victory. The devil wants to talk to you about predestination or religious folks want to talk to you about predestination. Tell them, yeah, I believe in that predestination stuff. I'm predestined to victory. I'm predestined to victory. I can't go under because I'm predestined to go over. Amen. 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 Hallelujah. Lord, we worship you. We magnify your name. Thank you for your goodness. Oh, Father, what a mess the church world is in. What a mess by allowing men to establish doctrine instead of the word to be our doctrine. But, oh, Father, thank you for the Holy Ghost that shows us the truth. I pray, Father, that these people the people that are here in this place and the people that listen to the sound of my voice through any means, I pray, Father, that they would seek you to to know how much more there is to your goodness and your victory than even what we've been able to say today. Oh, Father, we love you so much. Thank you, Jesus, for being our sacrifice. Thank you, Father, that we have been raised and seated in heavenly places, raised with Christ and seated at your right hand the place of authority. Quicken us, Lord. Show us how we can use that authority to stop the enemy's work in our lives so that we can not only walk in victory ourselves, but also be a blessing to others and help them into victory. In Jesus' precious name, amen, amen, amen. Praise the Lord. Well, if you can come back and be with us tonight at 5 o'clock is uh, prayer school, and they also have the, uh, the parent classes that start then. 6 o'clock is healing school. God bless you. We love you. Thank you for being part of us.